know that um, he is sustaining me. So um, I'm grateful for that. Many of you know that my sermons are getting longer the more I take chemo. So I don't know how that works. But that's his, uh, that's his love and his mercy and his grace. And so with that, I want us to dive back into Ephesians. We're in our third week on the book of Ephesians. And uh, I, uh, we're, we're going to finish chapter one today. And uh, just as a recap, uh, we are going to walk through the entire book of Ephesians over the, the next several months. And we, we recognize that Ephesians is broken up into two parts. The first part is what we believe, what we believe about Jesus and his resurrection and what the church is and what we believe about our mission as the church. And then finally, in the last three chapters, chapters four through six, uh, Paul then talks about how we are to behave as the family of God, uh, how we are to engage our community, how we are to engage uh, one another. And so we see here that uh, the first two weeks, we looked at the spiritual blessings that all believers have in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at the, uh, the, the fact that we have this amazing uh, ability to know Christ, to know Christ both in his word and through prayer, and Paul here leads them into that in the latter part of this first chapter. And then uh, it'll be a while because we're going we're gonna to pause for the uh, Palm Sunday, um, which will be on April 2nd, and then uh, on April 9th, we're going to uh, obviously celebrate Easter, and we'll return on April 16th with Ephesians chapter 2. Next week, Jesse is preaching for us, and he'll be talking about the life after, uh, the, the life after death. And uh, if you're interested in that topic, you won't want to miss uh, that particular message by Pastor Jesse. And so we look at these uh, the next six weeks, uh, or the next several weeks of the second short part of uh, Ephesians chapter uh, chapters four through six, and you'll see the topics there. So now let's look at what we've learned in the first chapter. There are seven spiritual blessings laid out for us. The first one is that God shows from the foundation of the world that everyone who is in Christ will be holy and blameless. Every one of us who are in Christ will be holy and blameless. The second is that we are predestined to be adopted as sons. When you became a believer, you were then predestined to be adopted into God's family. You are predestined spiritually immediately at, at the conversion, but then later, after the Christ comes and gathers his church to him, then we are physically adopted. We, are, we receive a new body, it says in the, the New Testament. The third is that we have redemption, that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. This is a tremendous blessing. And then fourthly, we are enlightened to the mystery of his will. And we learn in chapter 3 of Ephesus that the mystery of his will is in fact that God has a family that is made up not just of the Israelite people, but of all Gentile believers as well. And so he has enlightened us to this truth. The fifth one is that we are predestined to receive an inheritance, that all of us have an inheritance in our future, the kingdom of God. The sixth one is that we were included in Christ when we first believed. When we believed in Jesus Christ, we were included in him, in which we received all of these blessings. And then lastly, but
simply we are marked or we are sealed by the Holy Spirit when we believe for that day of redemption, that day of inheritance, guaranteeing our salvation. There is no doubt about it. When you are in Christ, you are in Christ forever. You are eternally secure. You are preserved through the remainder of this life, and you will enter into the kingdom of God. What beautiful spiritual blessings we all have in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we've we move now from the praise of the spiritual blessings to the prayers for spiritual knowledge. The prayers for spiritual knowledge, our knowledge in Christ. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn open to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, they read like this. For this reason, and he says for this reason, it's, it's uh, also in some translations, therefore, meaning having recounted all of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, we therefore, okay, and this is what Paul said, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Father, this is your word. Oh, what beautiful truth is contained in this passage from Paul. Lord, we know your Holy Spirit inspired you to write these words, and they represent the truth, the truth of Christ how we can know him, know him intimately. Oh, Lord, today I pray that all of us will draw closer to our Savior, closer to the one who has called us, closer to the one who will secure for us that great inheritance, and closer to the one who will give us the power of his resurrection life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, it's interesting, as I think about this particular passage, we begin with a prayer. And we begin with a prayer. Paul says uh, he is thankful. He is thankful for two things. Number one, their faith. The faith of this Ephesian church. And then also their love. Did you know that he says here, for all of the saints? Did you know that you are a saint? Did you know that if you are in Christ, you are a holy one? A saint? It's not just for some church body or leadership to declare you, venerate you as a saint? No. In the Bible, you are a saint if you are part 
of the kingdom of God, if you are part of the family of God. Isn't that amazing? Many of us would say, well, I don't certainly act like a saint. Well, that's true, but in Christ, you are a saint. Why? Because the word saint means holy one, and a holy one is one who is separated for a work to do, separated for God's divine purpose in your life. And so we are saints. He then prays for them in verse 17 that God will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, wisdom is really where knowledge and experience intersect. Knowledge and experience. The knowledge of the word of God and the experience in living out this thing we call the Christian life. The idea is that the more experience you have, the more you are able to understand God's purpose for your life and God's plan for your life and the way in which you suffer through life, you go through difficulties, you have different experiences, you've learned a lot through life, and therefore you then depend on God's sustenance and his provision through your life more and more. This then generates a wise and discerning attitude. Wisdom doesn't come immediately to all of us. It has to come through the shaping and the molding and the refining of the fires of life because life is not easy. Many of us have experienced difficulties or tragedies or disease or even death in our families. People have been taken away way too early in our lives. We can look around us and see all kinds of things that are happening in this world. And we say, why, Lord? Oh, why is this happening in our world? And God says that the wisdom that comes from this is like the wisdom of Christ. He's the one who suffered more than any of us. If you've suffered in life, and if you're sitting here this morning and you're going through a painful time, or you can remember a time when you have gone through a painful suffering experience, or you're getting ready to go into a painful suffering experience, get this, you are closer to Christ in the midst of that suffering and pain than ever before. This is the truth of Scripture. That when we suffer, we are like Christ. Paul will say that later in Philippians, and we'll mention that as we get there. But then this idea of revelation, not only wisdom, but revelation. He says, I want you to have the revelation. Now, what does it mean, revelation? Many of us have a book in the Bible called Revelation. It's the final book of the Bible. It's one of the first books that I read as a new believer. And I'll tell you right now, it scared me. It was crazy. It was hard to read. But the word revelation literally means, you know, because a lot of people go, I can't understand it. But it's ironic, isn't it? Because the word revelation means to unveil, to disclose, to make known, to make easy to understand. And it says the first five words of that book say the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the entire book, Revelation, is this is who Christ is. This is who Christ is. He is the Messiah. He is the risen Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Revelation is to be given information that previously was disclosed. The church, all of us, have the ability by the Spirit to be given this immeasurable amount of knowledge and revelation from God. And for what reason? For what reason? Look at what it says there in verse 17. At the very latter part of the verse, it says that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
And then he gives three reasons. And I'll walk through all three reasons. You can fill in your sermon notes, and then we can dig into each one as we go through. But here are the reasons, beginning in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, okay, know, number one, the hope to which he has called you, the hope of his calling. Number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance. The riches of his inheritance. And then finally, in verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which is exerted, which is in, in Christ, is exerted when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And so the third knowledge of Christ is this power of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. So now let's look at them each individually. First, that our hearts would be enlightened. They would give us knowledge. It's the seat of the will and the emotions. All of us wrestle with our heart feelings, the way we feel about certain things, the way we respond about certain stimuli or things in our lives. He says the hope to which he has called you. Do you realize that the Christian faith is one of hope? It's one of hope. It's always thinking the most possible, beautiful outcome, regardless of the present circumstances. That's what hope is. And we all have hope. Every single Christian has hope, not only in, in the life to come, but even in this life, that we have a Savior who is there for us. The calling is this vocational call. Once you come into Christ, once you are a believer, then God has work for you to do. We will learn this next week in Ephesians chapter 2, or the next time we speak in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, God prepared in advance for you to do good works. He saved you for a purpose. The purpose is for you to do good works in the work of his kingdom and his divine plan. And so this vocational call is really living and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Living the gospel and then sharing the gospel, the good news. That's what it's all about. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we read these words. Live a life worthy of the calling you received. So you've received a calling. Now live a life worthy of that calling. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, we read these words. We continually pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Who makes you worthy of his calling? God does. How does he do that? By using the circumstances and events and issues in our life to bring us closer to the one he has called to save us, and that's Jesus Christ. When you come into a right relationship with Christ, when you really want to know Christ, you will draw closer to him. He will draw closer to you. And when you go through the trials, when you go through the testing, when you go through the fire, when you lose your job, when you lose your spouse, when you divorce, when you go through a difficult time uh, in life, your children are wayward, whatever it is, whatever that is happening in your life, guess what? God is shaping you and molding you and refining you to be closer to the one he called his son. Amen. This is the truth of the gospel. 
You see, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then in 2 Peter 1.10, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. So election isn't to salvation. Election is to service. Let's be clear about that. When you were elected under Christ, you were elected to serve him. You were elected to serve within the church. You were elected to be one of his uh, uh, heralds, people that are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what the election of the church is all about. So that's the hope of his calling. The second there is the riches of his inheritance. Look at what it says there in verse 19. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Notice here that the reference is to God's inheritance. Now, we talked about last week how we have an inheritance waiting for us, but there is, uh, there is also a reference here that this is God's inheritance. This should take us all the way back to the Old Testament, to the Torah, to the Pentateuch to Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. In Deuteronomy 4.20, we read these words. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his inheritance, as you now are. Here, see, this is God talking through Moses to the people, and he is saying, but as for you, the Lord took you out, brought you out of Egypt. He calls it an iron smelting furnace. Well, what is an iron smelting furnace? But something that refines, something that brings us into a right relationship with him. They were, uh, they had endured 400 years of bondage, 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and God brought them out. He delivered them, and he says, I have brought you out as my own inheritance, I have called this nation, Israel, to be my people, to be a holy priesthood, to be a holy nation. And so this is the riches of his inheritance. He says the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And so we see the riches of God's inheritance here. But then we get to the third one, which runs from verses 19 all the way to the end of the chapter. Look at what it says there. Verse 19 and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably great power for us who believe. You know, the word power here in the Greek is dunamis. Dunamis. It's the same word we get in the modern English, dynamite. Dynamite. Strong power, electric power. And this is what he's describing here. Dunamis, dynamite. Well, it's interesting. If you look at the word dynamite, you'll understand that we live in a world where there's a lot of power. But power is not always a good thing. And let me just get real with us right now. There is power that is exploited. Power is exploited. We see abuses of power in institutions all over our world, in governments. We see the exploitation of power. 
In business, we see the abuse of power. In education, we see the abuse of power. And even in the church, we see abuse of power. No, that's not the power that Paul is talking about. You know, we also see abuses of power in our own human ambition. You know, there's, it's not just a collective power that is being railed against here by Paul, but it's also this personal power. You know, we're living in a culture now where people say, I have the power to do anything I want. I can do anything I want. I, God will bless me. He will make my dreams come true. He will underwrite my plans for my life, for my truth. He will, be, he will make me prosperous if I just have enough faith to believe. But that's not what Paul is referring to here at all. That's not the kind of power that Paul's referring to. All of that is wrong. Yes, some people are prospered, but then there are others who are not, and it causes many to go and walk away from the faith because they don't understand why God won't give them what they want. That's not, that's not the kind of God we serve. You see, this power that Paul is talking about is resurrection power. Look at what it says there in verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. When he raised him from the dead. That's the resurrection power. You understand in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said this to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? You see, and this is a powerful truth that we must understand. The resurrection of Christ is available to us as well. In Romans chapter 6 verse 4 it says this, For we, if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, do you remember when I said Paul was an apostle who wanted to know Christ? Oh, friends, this morning, if you want to know Christ, you have to embrace both aspects of what Paul articulates in Philippians chapter 3. He says that anything that I have gained is rubbish before the Lord. I consider it all loss compared to the inexpressible love of Christ. And then he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. My question for us this morning is, do you want to know Christ? Do you? Do you want to know Christ? Ask, ask that question in the deepest recesses of your heart. Because I promise you, knowing Christ comes at a tremendous cost. There is a tremendous cost to coming into a deep, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you willing to go there? You see, many of us want to play on the surface. Many of us want to take what he can give us but we don't want to give of ourselves to him. This is the power of knowing Christ. I, Paul says, want to know Christ. And listen to what he says. And the power of his resurrection, the dunamis of his resurrection. Oh, do you want to know the power of Jesus' resurrection? Do you? I do. 
I can't wait for that day when I am raised victorious over the grave. Death no longer has any control over me or anyone else in Christ. Oh, the day is coming when death will be no more. No more. We will be alive, more alive than we ever thought we would be. This is the beauty of the gospel, that we will have resurrection power. And oh, it would be great if he stopped with that sentence. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. But there's an end. The end is, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You know, I'm convinced that a lot of people who are Christians today will sign up for the power of his resurrection. Have you signed up for the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings? You know, C.S. Lewis once said, I think most Christians don't really know what it's like to follow Christ because we haven't withstood temptation long enough to suffer long enough. We haven't withstood the trials of life long enough to understand what it's like to be Jesus. You see, that is what Paul says here. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul, the apostle, suffered for Christ. And we sit here and we want to suffer with Christ. Oh, that you would get the opportunity to suffer alongside Christ. Because in that suffering, in that tender moment when you are alone with God and it's just you and him, having a conversation, you pouring out your heart to God, it's in that moment that you are closer to Christ than you've ever been. That is what Paul is saying here. You want to know Christ? Know this fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And then it says, in verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. You notice how he sat down at the right hand of Almighty God. The right hand is a position of power in the Bible. The right hand is a position of honor. The right hand is a position of authority. Jesus sat down, and the fact that he sat down means that his work was finished. Therefore, when he hung on the cross and he uttered the words, it is finished, he literally meant what he said. It is finished. Father, I have come to do what you have called for me to do. I have paid the penalty for the sin of all humankind. And now I am coming back to you. To sit, to sit down means his work is finished until he comes again. Because he will come again. And so... Far above, look at what it says there, far above, oh, let me say this, in heavenly realms, in heavenly realms, five times in this letter, that phrase occurs, in heavenly realms. What is Paul's point of constantly referring to in the heavenly realms? It says there in verse uh, 10, 
in the heavenly realms. It says there in chapter uh, 1, verse, um, this verse, in the heavenly realms. It says in chapter 2, in the heavenly realms. It says in chapter 4, in the heavenly realms. It says in chapter 6, in the heavenly realms. Over and over and over again, he is saying, in the heavenly realms. The point is, is that our battle is not against people, flesh and blood. Our battle is against the powers, the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly realms. We'll look at that in just a minute. So Paul is telling us that we are raised by the power of his resurrection and that Christ himself is seated at the right hand of God. Notice it says here that he is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Do you get that? Far above. Jesus is above. Now what are these powers, these rulers, these authorities, these dominions? Well, they're the spiritual realm, the spiritual realm, and they are the negative aspect of the spiritual realm. They are the fallen angels. They are the fallen ones who have rebelled against God. They are the ones who are trying to ruin humankind to keep us from coming to Christ. They're the ones who are active in this world. They are exerting influence and impact on this world. They influence whole nations. They influence individuals. You do things in your sinful life that you then later say, how did I do that? Why did that happen? And sometimes these spiritual forces of evil are at work in your own life. They're at work in the life of the church. They're at work in life of government and, and, and governments and, and business. This is what's happening in the world today. We have all kinds of infiltration of this evil empire, this evil realm that Jesus refers to here. But in Colossians 1.16, we learn this, for in him all things were created. That is, in Christ all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so we see that these powers are created. But then secondly, they are subservient. Notice what it says, what we just read. He is far above all this dominion and power and authority and rule. He is far above it. He is above every name. Jesus is the name above every name, every title. During Jesus' life, Caesar reigned. Caesar was in control, and he was God on earth. He was the representative of God on this earth. But Jesus, during that time, came, and he himself said, Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This is repeated for us twice in the New Testament. And then it says, In this age and the age to come. Notice what it says there. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Do you realize that Revelation chapter 11 has these words, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Do you remember what I said about Revelation? It has disclosed the fact that Jesus is not only the king of this world, but of the world to come. He is the king of all. He is the king of kings. That's why in Psalm 110 we read these words. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you realize that particular psalm 
that verse is quoted over and over and over and over again in the New Testament letters. That is why when Jesus said, I will come again, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, he was making a declaration that he is the owner of everything. I want to share with you a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, but it wraps up nicely with what we've discussed this morning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, a martyr, a prophet, and a spy during the Nazi regime in the 1930s and 40s. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a biography written by Eric Metaxas, and it identifies uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a man who himself was kind of the antithesis of what the Nazi uh, culture and worldview reflected. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was overwhelmed by a visit that he made to a particular uh, community. It was called Bethel. Bethel uh, was a community started by a man named Friedrich von Bodelschwing. Friedrich von Bodelschwing. How many of you have ever heard of him? How many can say his name? I had to practice that. And his son, Friedrich Jr. In 1869, he started this society for people with ep epilepsy. It was a community of Christians who cared for those who were epileptic, those who were struggling in their life. They had special needs. And then later on, by 1900, they were serving 1,600 people with all kinds of physical and mental disabilities. And this particular community was called Bethel. And Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, came and visited many times this place. And this is what he said about Bethel. Bethel began in 1867 as a Christian community for people with epilepsy. But by 1900, it included several facilities that cared for 1,600 physically and mentally disabled people. Friedrich Jr. took it over at his father's death in 1910. And by the 1930s, it was a whole town with schools, churches, farms, factories, shops, and houses for patients, nurses, and caregivers. At the center were hospitals and care facilities, including orphanages. Bonhoeffer saw Bethel as the antithesis of the Nazi worldview that exalted power and strength. You understand, Nazism wanted to wipe out those who were not the perfect race. This is what Nazism was. This is what Hitler and all of his followers wanted to do, was to completely wipe out anyone who would not measure up to the perfect human race. All of us know of the Holocaust and the horrible tragedies of that and the millions and millions of Jewish people who were walked into the death camps and executed mercilessly. Ironically, they would call it mercy killing. But what most people don't know is that during this time, of the Nazi regime, they also murdered mercilessly hundreds of thousands of people with severe physical and mental disabilities. 
Many times the Nazis would knock on the door of Bethel and say, we want to take over. And Friedrich Jr. resisted and resisted and resisted and protected that community. Nazism has come and gone. But this place called Bethel still exists today. It is in 14 cities around Central Europe, and they still care for thousands and thousands of people with special needs. This has special attention to me or application to me. And Bonhoeffer saw the Bethel and he was blown away. And this is what he said about this place called Bethel. It was the gospel made visible, a fairy tale landscape of God's grace where the physically and mentally disabled were cared for in a palpably Christian atmosphere. I believe that what Bonhoeffer witnessed at Bethel was really the heart of Paul here to the church in Ephesus. He wanted them to understand that power isn't something that we wield in order to get ahead. The power of the resurrection is what we use to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Folks, everybody has a disability. Everybody has a special need. The greatest special need that all of us have is the need for a savior. Amen. And that king is King Jesus. He is the savior of all. Mm. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word from Paul. We thank you for helping us to understand not only what it's like to receive the hope of your calling on our lives, to receive the glorious inheritance in God our Father, but also to receive the power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that power is not only the power of the resurrection, but the power to transform lives, to be a light to this world, to serve like Bethel, a church that cares for those who cannot care for themselves. Oh Lord, I believe firmly that Ashley River has been placed in this community to be a Bethel of sorts, for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray all of this in the capable name of Jesus Christ, the raised one, the resurrected one. In his name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Please.